welcome to the Movie Mingle, the official podcast of MovieMingler.com. I'm Nick and I'm joined by Tate Boyland of the House Tyrell. How are you, Tate Boyland? I'm doing fantastic this evening. How are you, Nick? I am fine. I'm actually very excited because today we are talking about Christopher Nolan's brand new film, Dunkirk, starring Harry Styles, James Darcy, Kenneth Branagh, Killian Murphy, Mark Rylance, Tom Hardy. How can uh, you forget Tom Hardy? You and, left him at the end. And various others. Well, he deserves the end credit. Some, you know, they sometimes they in movies they leave the end credit for someone really special. And I feel like he's a very special part of this movie. I'll just say that oh, without spoilers. We'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm so excited because, well, in my opinion, Christopher Nolan is probably the best director of the last 20 years. He's had the best group of films overall. He surely is the most notable director of this decade. Oh, without a doubt. The last two decades, when you really think about it. Memento came out 2000. But he wasn't a notable figure back when he did Memento. No, he became but more now, notable once The Dark Knight came now out. Now everybody knows his name. He's a household name. So there's only a few filmmakers that I would actually flag that I have to cover on this podcast, no matter what. And Christopher Nolan is one of them. So uh, I was going to do this movie no matter what. And the thing is, if you normally listen to this podcast, you've listened to it before, you know that the usual structure of this podcast is we do a our first hour of each show or so about that. We do a, we talk about the highlights of our last few weeks in movies where we talk about some of the other films we've seen. Um, and then we get into our feature review about an hour in. So normally that's the show. That's how it works. It's about a two-hour podcast every couple of weeks. But because right now, if you don't know, on moviemingler.com, we actually do a podcast called A Cast of Ice and Fire, which is a weekly Game of Thrones podcast. But I want to get this out as quick as possible, and I know that there's an incoming Game of Thrones podcast to edit. So we agreed that we would skip the highlights of our weeks in movies this week just so we could get this podcast up quicker. Um, because like I said, we're in the midst of Game of Thrones podathon. Because normally during this period, I would say, like last year when we did the Game of Thrones podcast, I think we had two movie mingles at that in that 10-week period. It sort of dies down now and the focus becomes Game of Thrones for that short period. But like I said, you can't skip Dunkirk. I really want to talk about Dunkirk. Tate really wants to talk about Dunkirk. So we're going to talk about Dunkirk and we're just going to skip the other stuff. So let's get straight into it. Straight into it. First, let's play a bit of the Dunkirk trailer. And then after you've heard that, we'll come back and we'll discuss Dunkirk. Where are we going? Dunkirk. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go there, we'll die. see it from here. What? Home. And that was from the trailer of Dunkirk, the new film from Christopher Nolan, starring Harry Styles, James Darcy, Kenneth Branagh, Killian Murphy, Mark Rylance, Tom Hardy, and various others. Uh, quick warning, when we review a movie that's currently in the cinema, we talk spoiler-free for a while. 
And so I'll ask Tate what his opinion is. I'll say my opinion and then we'll discuss it for a while. And then when we need to get to spoilers, we'll give a big warning. The thing is, there are some spoilers in this film. So I think our spoiler talk for this movie won't be as long as usual. But there's a few little things I want to mention that I don't want to wreck for people who are going into this movie uh, for the first time ever. So, yeah, just saying that, you know, we'll talk spoiler free for a very long time. And then probably the last 10 minutes or so, we're going to talk with some spoilers. And don't worry, though, we'll give you a big warning you know, when the spoilers are coming. Obviously, when it comes to history's events, though, we might spoil that the Germans lost the war. So if you don't know that yet, I'm, I'm sorry, the Germans lost. The Allies won. And Dunkirk was an evacuation. And if you don't know that, that's not a spoiler. That's you not knowing history. So, Tate, why don't you start us off by letting us know, and the lovely listeners in the World Wide Webs, uh, what did you think of Dunkirk spoiler-free? Well, Nick and the lovely listeners out there, what I like about... Christopher Nolan and over his filmography is that Lennon, McCartney, Spielberg, Williams, Zimmer and Nolan. Nolan and Zimmer working together sort of make this film. This film doesn't delve much into a plot line, but what Nolan can do with his direction coupled with Hans Zimmer and his score doesn't have to be elaborate, doesn't have to be magical doesn't have to be awe popping but they work so well in unison that this film can work on a level that not other many other filmmakers nor composers would be able to do together also this film just feels like a world war ii in color with a big budget it doesn't feel like a film so much it's more like a documentary this you feel like you're actually part of the moment and you're not watching characters develop on screen but you feel like you're part of the situation in this film and no other film that has been able to do something like this before. Well, Saving Private Ryan sort of reinvented the whole entire war film, but this sort of reinvents it completely again to sort of show a situation of war and what people had to do to sort of get out of that situation without having to polish a, a story or plot line in between. So it's not so much a movie. It's more it's more like a, a, a very high-budget and glossy documentary. You know, you could say it's a high-budget snapshot of life. It's just the situation. They had to get off Dunkirk. That's it. There's no sitting down at the campfire saying, I can't wait to uh, get back home to see my son. Well, I don't know why I did an accent just <laughs> well, But there's none, there's none of that people sitting down saying, I can't wait to get back to my wife. She's pregnant. I can't wait to do this. Nolan has made a movie where you don't have to know everyone's little detail to know that it's, they're human beings in a horrible situation and, and they want to get out. And they're just trying to survive and get out. Yeah. And it's it's a risky way to tell a story because I agree with you. It's it's not a normal film. I've never quite seen ever a big budget film that treated its narrative like this because it literally doesn't have a narrative. It sort of starts off with the evacuation of Dunkirk and it ends at the end of the evacuation of Dunkirk of the English side at least. And it doesn't it doesn't show you what happened before. It doesn't show you what happens after, really. It's just about being in that moment. There's not one moment in the film. I mean, this is interesting. A lot of people, a lot of critics, and even myself, even though I love Interstellar, so don't get me wrong, but a lot of critics uh, criticized Nolan for his inability to like basically pull at the heartstrings to get into emotion. He tried so hard at the end of Interstellar to like make you feel emotion for what was happening, but he mishandled it. He's not Spielberg. He couldn't quite, it didn't work. It was a bit cold. I love the movie, but I can admit that a lot of the emotion was a bit cold at the end. 
Uh, and most of the emotion comes from how good Matthew McConaughey is. But other than that, it doesn't quite work. Where in this film, he did the, he did something completely opposite. It's like he heard that criticism and he said, I'm going to tell a story and I'm going to strip back all the Hollywood hoo-ha, all the Hollywood cliches about this is, and this is what makes movies emotional. So don't get me wrong. It's not like it's horrible, but I'm saying he must have made a conscious effort to say, no more stories about my pregnant wife at home. No more stories about, uh, this is my, I was going to retire next year. I don't know. Like there's none of that. There's none of that. Filler in the emotion, and it's all about Hollywood buzz and that Hollywood vibe. This is how movies' emotions work normally: getting to know characters. So I'm not saying that's a. I I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want every movie to be like Dunkirk because it wouldn't work all the time. But Nolan said, okay, it didn't work in Interstellar that much. People criticized me for my movies being a bit cold, and so I'm going to throw you into this harrowing situation. I'm going to show how it is, and I'm going to let the emotion of the situation Mm. work. And I'm telling you, by the time we got to the last. Half an hour of this film, I was tense and on the edge of my seat. And by the time we got to the last 10 minutes, I found the movie overwhelmingly emotional in parts. Like I got teary-eyed and I got emotional. And there was not one moment where the movie sat me down and manipulated that emotion out of me. It happened just because, I mean, World War II, what they asked, what we asked, uh, you know, our previous generation asked these incredibly brave men to do was just heart-wrenchingly horrible. It was just, it's harrowing. And it's and this movie just puts you there, and it just hit me at the end because there's some really beautiful emotion. But not one moment did I think there's Nolan pulling a string, even though obviously this movie's all about a director pulling string. But it never felt like an artificial pulling of a string. It just felt like this natural release of emotion happened because of just the situation how he set it up. You know what I mean? Nothing is ever showy. There's not one person dying in someone else's arms and crying. You know what I mean? There's no cinematic moment like that. And I thought that was what made this movie so special because it really hit me emotionally. It hit me more emotionally than I think any Nolan film ever has because of that. So, we we anyway. like to confide in movies for to to have our emotional strings pulled. Oh, that's then, what movies are, yeah. But Nolan shows in this film that through authenticity, without being ran with dialogue, sort of like life, it's unscripted but unscripted things and certain events can play out and they still have an emotional effect. War had an emotional effect. War was not scripted. It may have been planned, but the course of action from start to finish, there's no dialogue running in between. But the, the emotional heartfelt from the actual causation of the event absolutely, is what gets you emotional. And this is what Nolan does in this film. There's no dialogue. There's hardly any script at all. Maybe when he went on the desk and got an idea f- to pitch a film and he just hands four pages. Well, he wrote the script and it was his shortest script ever. Yeah. Um, most of the writing comes with the narrative of how you tell the story. Like, there's obviously a lot of work in how you, you know, cut the story together and all that, but a lot of the narrative isn't from the mouths of actors saying stuff. I mean, there's dialogue there when it needs to be there, but like I said, it's never showy. It's, it's never showy. It's never... It's the, the, it's we the find of a great filmmaker. Yes. Really. Because the, an yeah. average mediocre filmmaker, you could not get away with making something like this. You you need to know exactly what you're doing and exactly what you want. Oh, this comes from skill. Work. This comes from someone who's made a lot of movies too. And like I said, that coupling with Hans Zimmer and the cinematographer in this film as well. Yeah. They all deserve uh, credit because they make this film special. Yeah, the um Hoyt Van Hoytemum. Yeah. I hope I said his name right. He's the guy who photographed Interstellar and Spectre. Yep. So he's had a good. That's his last few films, and he obviously photographed this, and he's going to win an Academy Award. It looks shot on film as well. Shot on film, shot in glorious IMAX sixty-five millimeter, and also just a sixty-five millimeter large film stock. And we talk. I mean, it's hard to put into words to someone who hasn't seen it 
just how authentic this movie looks. Unlike pretty much every other $100 million plus blockbuster that exists in the world right now, it doesn't rely on an overabundance of computer-generated effects. Practical visual effects it's, and it's, models and, and real and planes real and real planes boats. And things. When you first meet your main character in the movie and he, he runs onto the beach and you see a wide shot of him looking and he sees thousands of extras and he sees boats off in the distance. And because it's shot on film as well, it doesn't have that digital feel. And real sun, real light, real wind blowing, real extras everywhere. Because, you know, I mean, movies nowadays don't do that. Movies nowadays get 100 extras and then they digitally add to them. Nolan has a 1,000 people on the beach for some shots. And you can feel it. And that's the thing, you can feel it. I've never been in a movie, nearly ever, a big movie that felt so authentic. Mm. You realise how artificial big movies normally feel. Yeah. Any big movies, blue screens everywhere, CGI shots everywhere, everything looks like a movie. And it felt like a really, like like I said, it just felt like a really high-end documentary. And because, because you don't have... A character, like the main character doesn't have a story where he talks about his mother back at home. He doesn't talk about his child on the way. He doesn't say anything about himself, really. Hence, I didn't even know his name was Tommy, the main character, really. There's a, there's one main character on the land who I say is he's on the poster. He's sort of the main vessel of the movie. Yeah. I didn't know his name was Tommy until I read the credits. I don't even know if they say his name in the movie because why would he tell anyone his name is Tommy anyway? Who cares what your name is in this situation? What they're caring about is how do I get out of here? But this they put you into this world where this character is just in over his head. He's overwhelmed by spectacle. And the spectacle is so real. Real boats, real planes, real water, real wind, real everything. Shot on film, which gives weight to it, not digital sheen. And, and because he's like an avatar for the audience, because he doesn't have a personality really. It's just a human being who wants to survive. You know, he's like anyone else who's an 18-year-old kid on that wall right now. It doesn't matter what his backstory is. He, he's sort of a blank slate in a way, but he works because we want a young 18-year-old boy, we want him to survive. He's obviously an innocent kid. And the thing is, because of how blank slate he is in a good way, I found myself being sucked into the movie. And because I was being sucked into the movie, I felt like I was in the situation in a way. It brought me in. You go to a movie and you and you and you sit as an outsider watching a yes, film. Yes, and you this go, movie, you feel like you're a part of the film. You feel immersed. I felt that exact same feeling as well. You got these beautiful wide shots. You got these planes coming. You can hear the and they're like screaming at you, scary. These you know these bombers coming in, and you just feel like you're right there with the main character in this horrible situation, and you start to think about what you would do, and that's what a good movie does. And there have been a lot of great World War II films, movies like Saving Private Ryan, which is one of Spielberg's absolute masterpieces. But watching this film, I have never been as sucked into a movie, into a World War II movie, into that situation, as much as this film sucked me in. Just because of the blank avatar of a main character, the realism of the world, and the lack of film cliches and just a snapshot of the situation just drove me straight into the film i was there it's because you actually felt like you were at war and i felt overwhelmed and that's what happened i'm watching this movie and the character tries to get on a boat maybe and then the boat sinks so he has to swim back and it's like you can't you know there's there's u-boats in the water there's planes in the air there's troops behind us in the town like how do we get out of here and you just feel so desperate with him and it builds and builds and builds by the last half an hour, it built so much that I was just wanting people to get out. And I don't care what their names are. They're human beings. I want them to get out. Yeah, we didn't even know their names, but we didn't want them to die. No, because they're human. And and I 
and I and so I'm wondering like how would I get out? And I felt you know I felt lost with him because there was no way out. With the main character without spoiling stuff, it's really hard to consider how you would go next because one stage he just sits on the beach, he's lying down because he literally has nothing he can do. Mm-hmm. And that's what you get this idea of how helpless you are in the movie. Like the movie cuts around, you feel lost, you feel disorientated, you don't know people's names, well, you don't get to know there, anyone. There's a thousand people on the beach, yeah. but they don't know each other. So everybody feels completely isolated, even though they're all there. Yeah. But they're all in the same situation. And they all just want they're to get all, out. Then their primary objective is getting back home. You see a moment where they're on the boat at one stage and people want to jump on and they're part of the people that say you can't jump on. They don't say, but like the, the boat they're on. And then like 10 minutes later, the, the roles are reversed and they can't get onto a boat sort of thing. It's just, it really immersed me. So that was just the great filmmaking in the film. I mean, the minute this movie starts, you know you're in the hands of an auteur. You're in the hands of a real filmmaker, like a real filmmaker. It's so marvelously constructed and it's so... He's obviously so powerful, Nolan, that he can make a $150 million movie about the British side of the war, which we don't normally get because, you know, normally filmmakers can't get $150 million to make any World War II film, let alone the British side of the war. But also he made a movie that's not commercial in the sense it's not a proper three-act narrative. It's like a silent film. I actually read somewhere that he watched silent films to get the sense of visual storytelling and all that. You can see it. This movie's like a silent film, except... It relies on these deafening sound effects and the music building, like a heartbeat, and the. But it really, the visually, it tells a story like a silent film. There's a moment later on where Tom Hardy makes a decision. He's a pilot in the film. He will make a decision, and he doesn't say one word. He's got half his mouth covered up, hmm. but you just know exactly what he's going to do and, and how heavy that decision is. You know exactly what it means. But there's, there's and there's parts, not one moment. But there's parts of that film that lead up to that telling you that yeah. situation where. By the time he actually makes it, you know exactly what he's doing. But he makes a situation without saying a word. Yeah. The music doesn't blare any differently, really. It's just you you know. But you have enough information visually put there to actually piece it together quite practically. Well, that's the thing. Without without having to be told, this is happening. Oh, don't do this. Don't do that. It shows you a real growth in Christopher Nolan as a visual storyteller. One of the criticisms people have of Nolan, but it's not my criticism because I love his scientific science fiction babble. But one of the criticisms people have is that his movies are exposition heavy. Uh, Inception is the first half of the movie is just explaining how everything works. Mm. I love it. But some people say, you know, he relies so much on the dialogue telling you because he writes it as well. Yeah. But now you've got 20 years into his career and he's made a movie where he realizes he can tell the story visually. He doesn't have to tell you everything. He doesn't have to explain everything. He doesn't have to treat you dumb. He doesn't have to sit you down and lecture you like he does in Inception, though I love Inception, but he lectures you in parts. He doesn't have to do any of that. He's learned. He's learning how to visually tell a story, and he's not just telling a visual story that's about a guy walking down the street. He's. I mean, this is a large scale movie. This is a hundred and fifty million dollar movie with real ships, the biggest uh, marine fleet ever for a film. In history, yeah. Planes, real planes and models, uh, thousands of extras and shots, real. You know, Spielberg said he would never shoot in the sea again. They shot in the sea in this movie, or it was a bloody good blue screen, but he doesn't do that. So I don't think it was blue screen. You could <laughs> feel it, don't you? You could feel, yeah, you could like feel the, the horizon. The, ocean. Yeah, the it, sun, the lighting, everything. Like, it wasn't perfectly lit. You could tell that they were actually working with the real with light. Actual light, not And it had a weight light. to it, doesn't it? The it and especially on the beach as well. On the phone. You just knew that it. They must oh, yeah, have shot it, like, you know, just probably late winter with all the foam in France. It's really exciting, and you can just see how much Nolan is growing as a visual filmmaker. It just adds another string to his filmmaking bow, which he can use in the future. 
So next time when he makes a more conventional film, as in I'm sure he's going to make a three-act movie again one day mm-hmm. that has a proper proper structure, you might see a Nolan that understands that you can restrain and you can actually tell people's stories visually because, like I said, that is a criticism of his. And it's a fair enough criticism. I do think that sometimes he over-lectures in a movie instead of letting the visuals tell. But he's growing when you see this. I mean, this movie is the opposite of that. This is like the opposite to what Nolan normally is in, a, in some ways. Not every way, but like I said, in the dialogue and the way the story's yeah. told. It's just right. He's just adding another notch to the belt, yeah. really, in this. Is that you're absolutely right. We've been given dialogue-heavy films from him, and this is a completely different side of his filmmaking, which just sort of elevates his prowess as just how a fantastic filmmaker he actually is. He is a fantastic filmmaker. He is, hands down, he's the best filmmaker of the last 20 years. I mean, you've got Denis Villeneuve recently, who's done, well, he's had one of the best five years ever, but Nolan's been going a little bit longer now. He's got a little bit more notches on the belt, because in my opinion, movies like, my opinion, everyone can be different. You can tell me in a minute what you think, but my opinion I love all his movies, by the way, all of them. He's got three masterpieces, in my opinion. He's got Memento, mm-hmm. The Dark Knight, and Inception. And that's what I mean in the last decade. I mean, these are three movies that every other filmmaker could make once and just live off for the rest of their yeah, life. Memento was such a great film oh. for a debut book. Well, it it wasn't his debut, but, but it, was, it was his sort of his first film of notoriety. Yeah, I know. Because well, following, he made a movie called Following before that, but that was micro budget. It was sort of an extension of his is student but film but it's sort of a short film in its well anyway, it was like 70 minutes long but it's not but production. Memento is um, like his first 90 minute with actors movie like I mean and no offence to the people in following but like you know Guy Pierce and uh, Kerry Ann Moss and stuff like that like you know what I mean it's a proper yeah. and it's an immensely complicated movie that I've talked about so many times before because we take it for granted now because we've seen it and it's worked but that movie that movie was tells a story properly it tells the story of the guy looking for the murder of his wife but the so the narrative goes forward in the story though and yes, the and timeline goes backwards. backwards and yeah it works perfectly but we take for granted how perfectly it works because how it, difficult uh, to actually stitch yes. a concept like that up you take it for granted it's because crazy. it works but there's so many i there's not many people that can make that work uh a few months ago i reviewed the prestige with chris uh which by the way i'll put a link at the bottom of the podcast post of this podcast so you can go straight to the Prestige podcast if you want to listen, uh, because that movie is another example of Nolan understanding his audience and just manipulating him and how complicated that narrative actually is to assemble. It's amazing. Uh, this is much simpler. He's not trying to do the overcomplicated narratives and the jumps. It is 106 minutes of people just trying to get off a beach. They're trying to survive. That's it. That's the story. And that's its simplicity is like anti-Nolan, but like I'm saying... Yeah. That's kind of why it's so refreshing to see this from Nolan because now it might be it's a simple story and he's he's telling it on a large canvas, seventy millimeter large canvas, and it's it's just yeah, it's just great. I you, love this movie. You know what by the really way. surprises <laughs> me is that thanks to Hollywood and when you see one hundred and fifty million dollar budgets, you expect a lot of effects work and everything. Well, there's like effects that. work in this film, but they are actual effects. Yeah, that's the thing. It's that's practical the effects. Most people, when they have a $150 million budget, don't use it on actual proper things. Not nowadays. Things. They use it on special effects. Blue screens and explosions and, and, and things and like CGI. that. CGI. What I found really uneasy about this film as well is that when something actually gets bombed, it doesn't explode. No, it felt like, like it, real. It felt real. And, but Hollywood and me sitting in a chair at the cinema watching it, back in my mind saying... 
where's the explosion? Where's the Big Bang? Where's the fireballs? And but that, you don't get that in this film. Yeah, you want everything to be authentic. The gunshots sound authentic. Yeah. The bombs shake the room, the cinema. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I like. That sound of spitfires flying overhead. Well, you can hear them. And then you, by the time you get used to hearing them and then knowing bad things are happening next. Mm-hmm. So by, by the time of 70 minutes into the film, I start hearing a plane That's again. Good. I actually audibly said, oh, no. Like, I'm worried. I'm, I, you, can, you start hearing the terror. It, because those planes made that noise to basically scare the crap out of you. Yeah. And now I'm immersed into this world. I'm listening for that bloody plane coming back. And I'm like, oh, no. Yep. I just want people to get and away. And Zimmer's score as well on top of that working alongside those sound effects and it it's immersive. Is, is immersive and it's amazing. It and feels like you're actually there. And we talk about Hans Zimmer's score and you compared, you were saying his relationship with Nolan is sort of like Williams and Spielberg. I mean, they've been working together obviously a lot less mm-hmm. so far, but also they're going to be together for a while. But it's very different. When Williams does a score for Spielberg, it's way more, it's classical and traditional in mm-hmm. a great way. Like it's a different sort of score. But it's, ho- it's Hollywood flair in popcorn cinema. It's a different sort of score. Yeah. Uh, though in Saving Private Ryan, Spielberg had a score from from uh, Williams. Williams, but he didn't use it during the action or the other fighting scenes. He used just sound effects. Where Nolan goes a different direction, he tries to use Hans Zimmer's music as a as a momentum builder, as an like, amplifier. Uh, it's, a, it's ambience that yeah. builds and builds and builds, and it feels like a ticking clock, like something is about to come. You feel the ticks, tick, 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 and it builds and builds and builds. It's no melody, and I'm, I'm sure there is some sort of melody. But when you're watching the yeah. movie and you're immersed in the world, yeah. it doesn't feel like there's a melody. It's just like upping ambience the tension, and amplifying. And Dark Knight, it does it to be very sinister and. Yeah, Very well, the, deliberately like uneasing uh, with the Joker. The Joker score it's is just that, uh, yeah, sort of but like that also has some script, traditional yeah. music too, like dun, 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 dun. But uh, this doesn't have that. When the credits roll, you hear it. You hear a bit of a melody, but in general, when the movie's playing, it, it's not there. There's no melody. And so there's two ways you can go. I mean, what way do you personally think is more effective overall? Do you think? And you can say both, I guess. But do you think Hans Zimmer's sort of building? Uh, or do you think Spielberg just taking the music out completely and just throwing you into that world? I you think both, the, both work on individual levels. Spielberg takes it out and takes you to the gritty, harsh reality of actual battle sequence. But what Hans Zimmer can do with Christopher Nolan is actually like, amplify and boost up that actual moment. And I feel that it works better with that, but you wouldn't be able to get like John Williams and Spielberg to do the same thing. It just wouldn't work. Well, Spielberg, like he didn't. Spielberg's a great director. If you, a fantastic director, best. In the and world. Williams is one of the greatest composers in the world, best ever. But to get, <laughs> so but they talk about it, best ever. But they sort of don't work in unison for that. Type of well, war like I said, Spielberg wasn't situation. interested in music in Saving Private Ryan. If you remember, the, the machine guns become the music. So that's why I was asking, what do you think about that use over ambient build-up? Like, which one do you find better? Or you can like them both. They're just different. They're actually really good. Both work really well. And Hans Zimmer, like I said, right at the start of this podcast, my first my first note is Zimmer plus Nolan, the match is made in heaven. Um, sorry. Yeah, because Nolan loves his booming sound effects. Yep. This movie has moments that shake the cinema. And when you think about Interstellar, the famous explosion of Matt Damon's ship on the planet just shook the cinema. Like, Nolan loves... The bump, bump. He likes the big stuff. And Hans Zimmer is exactly that sort of... That he, he composes. He doesn't compose like Williams, the classical music. He composes like big thumps. Mm-hmm. 
So Hans Zimmer is the sort of, I would say, composer that it's harder to listen to by itself. You can, because I've got, the, I've got the Inception soundtrack and I love it. But in general, I think John Williams works a lot better by itself because it's more traditional in its music. Like I think John Williams is a better composer, full stop, in my opinion. But oh, Hans Zimmer, like you just said, though, Hans Zimmer works perfectly as a melody of what Nolan wants. Nolan's all about that ticking time bomb, that building of ambience, and that punching you in the gut sometimes. They strengthen each yeah, other. Yeah, without a doubt. Nolan strengthens Zimmer. Zimmer strengthens Nolan. Like I think Nolan has worked with Zimmer... For every movie, like he worked, I think they worked on Batman Begins together. They took the prestige off, but then since the Dark Knight, they worked on every film together, and they just they, they fit. And they just have great chemistry. And obviously, by doing that, doing that filmography together, it just grows and develops. So each each the composer and the director know exactly what they want from each other. Oh yeah, it's and great. It just makes a really good relationship, and those relationships just make really great films and really great scenes. So you've got that ticking time bomb of Hans Zimmer's music, but then you've also got just, like I said before, you get put into this world because he's sort of like a blank avatar, the main character, so you get sucked in. Everything feels so authentic that it feels like it's a real world. And like I said, it's hard for someone to understand what that is until you see this movie because about five minutes in this movie, you look at the beach and all that and you go, wow, how artificial movies normally, wow. Because you really see how authentic this film looks and nothing else is like this. This made me think of stuff like Cleopatra and the classic days of Hollywood where they had thousands of extras and huge, you know, big canvas. Ben-Hur, blank Ben-Hur, big yeah. canvas. Like, with thousands of extras. This is what it felt like. This felt so authentic. So what I'm trying to say anyway is that it was so much to take in sometimes. And, like, the way he shot his action too is part of this. As in, the dogfighting is intense and i've never been in a real dogfight obviously but it the way it was shot and the way the pacing of the scene was it wasn't like action set pieces like, like you know big fast editing and getting the action going it felt methodical like the way he got his plane behind his plane to shoot him down everything felt slow in a realistic way so what i'm trying to say is that this movie was so big it was so authentic to look at blank canvas i got sucked in the way the action worked wasn't traditional movie action it was real it felt real because it wasn't paced like to get this big explosion, this slow motion run. Even Saving Private Ryan is visually told. Like Spielberg's a great director and the action is told in a, in a little bit more spectacle way. Even yeah. though it's grounded and real, it feels a little bit more spectacle where this film just feels like, it felt like they got cameras at the real war. So you just get, and everything was so big and it's shot in 70 millimeter and everything looks so real and it's paced like real action. So it's not nonstop. You know, when a plane comes and bombs you, you got time to breathe and get ready for the next time it comes to bomb you. Like it actually takes two minutes to come back or, you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's, it's not just nonstop. Back around. So, things just don't blow up instantaneously. Yeah, things sink slowly and yeah. people get stuck under, like, so you, you get so immersed that I found this movie incredibly overwhelming. Like, I felt overwhelmed. I felt like the main character must have felt overwhelmed. See, I, see, I, I wrote that I actually felt uneasy in parts. Yeah, but well. I think that's why well, I personally felt uneasy because I felt so overwhelmed. Because I felt like a little ant, a little person, a little human in this situation where if I got on that ship, I would have died. If I stepped down, I would have got shot. It's just luck now. You're at a point now where it's just luck if you survive. And all around you, there's boats, there's planes, there's things blowing up. You just There's troops behind you. You just feel so overwhelmed by the movie. And that's like I said earlier about being overwhelmed and feeling emotion. I think that's how it worked all together. Like I felt so overwhelmed by the visuals that Nolan was telling, the way he's telling the story, that I was just on the edge and I got emotional near the end when some people die because it's a war film. Some people die in this film and it's emotional because you just, you're so invested in surviving and I, it's hard to put in words. It's just like, 
You know what I mean? Like the emotion came from being overwhelmed. The emotion came not from how we're going to take this ship down now, sir. The emotion came from just surviving yeah. this horrible odds. Like in Saving Private Ryan, when you first see the ship, it's a different movie, but I feel sort of overwhelmed at the beginning of that movie when you see some of the boats coming into the Normandy landing and some just blow up before they can even get out. And it's like, they weren't better soldiers or worse soldiers for surviving. There's a certain point where it just becomes luck now. And that's what this movie is. These people aren't trying to take down the fort. They're just trying to get off the goddamn beach. Yeah. And you could only get that sense of overwhelming fear if you had an authentic look on this large scale. Because I feel like if you have a movie that feels like every other movie in the sense of, you know, it might be beautiful CGI visual effects of those planes and beautiful CGI backdrops, they look great. But you know you're in a movie. Yeah. And I know you're in a movie here, but because everything felt so grounded and real, like the way the pacing and the looks and everything, it just really overtook me. Like this is an, if you haven't got the, the gist now, I think this movie is goddamn amazing. It is. It's an amazing achievement. What, what else is quite interesting about this film is that you, you never see the face of the enemy. No. But then just like war, if you were at war and you were yeah. actually going to battle, would you see the face of It's not personal, German, is it? I think? No, you wouldn't. Unless you were captured, it's probably the only good chance you're going to get to look at the, look at the enemy. You see how impersonal it all is. Some people just die. A lot of them died sad and alone and confused, mm-hmm. and they didn't. They, you know, you never saw the face of the enemy. They didn't know how the war was going to go, and they were expendable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Not because obviously the British didn't want all their troops to come home, but there was a certain point where you had to worry about the next battle. There's a scene in the movie where he overhears Kenneth Branagh, who's great in the film, talk to another general or major or something about. Why aren't there more warships coming? And he says, well, they've got to get ready for the next battle. So they can't save everyone. Yep. So they're, they're basically saying, well, get as many people out as we can, mm-hmm. but thousands are going to die. Or thousands yeah. already have died. Nine, thousands more are going I, to I, die. You, you, this film really gives that really great sense that 98% of the people are helpless and 2% might do something well, heroic. Well, that's the thing. Everyone, everyone felt like they were just trying to survive now. There was no, And it took like one person or two people in this film where they actually like do something... A heroic event. Yeah, there's some, like, there's Tom there's Hardy. A couple, well, Tom Hardy and um, he's a real Rylance hero. As well. Mike Rylance, and yeah, well, and he's not even part of the army. You know, he's and a hero. They're, they're actually like going and doing something heroic as part of the mission. But all always, these men were heroic. The, but, though, the, but, but the unfortunate thing is, they they got heroic intentions of actually doing something good, but most of the time they're absolutely helpless to stuff. Well, that's because of what the situation they're in. Yeah. They've already gone to France. They've lost to the Germans. The Germans are driving him out. Yep. They're not trying to win. Like I said, they're not trying to take down a fort now. They're trying to get off the goddamn like beach. Any other war film, you actually feel that. You don't really feel they're helpless in saving Private Ryan. You feel like they're going to make it out. I and agree with you. with Hacksaw because, Ridge as well. Oh, because you're following people. You're following but someone. you're following like, somebody with a hero. Or they're all heroes. Yeah. I think they're all heroes, these people. But I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying about someone going into date, like biting their teeth and going in. Yeah. Here you're seeing people who are just helpless. Like, but that's what most of war was like. And yeah. it's chaos. It's this movie is chaos, isn't it? Doesn't it show you? This movie. It's got those glimpses of heroic acts. But it's in Saving Private Ryan, you're following. the majority of what the war would have actually been like. Well, for the little people. Yeah. See, in Saving Private Ryan, you're following a person who leads a group. So Tom Hanks knows what he's doing. The, mm-hmm. I mean, it's an amazing movie. The situation is horrifying, but he knows what he's doing. There's plans to set up. He's these, got people, a these people are a little bit more yeah. like elite. They're like more like you know soldiers that know what they're kind of getting into, but right now what we're watching in Dunkirk is the everyman soldier, the expendable eighteen-year-old, and then many of them died, obviously, who is now just trying to escape, and they haven't got enough ships to escape, 
it's all chaos. They're, they're, they're surrounded. And it, what I said a second ago, the movie's chaos. Yeah. How badly organized is everything now? Of course, that's exactly yeah. what it's going to be like. But everything's so badly and, organized. And Churchill wants to get people back, but he doesn't want to expend more spitfires or more. And you can understand why, though. Because of when because the they, inevitable time that the Germans are going to come after come England. Over yeah. to England. Uh, you understand. That's what it shows you how in war. Well, people can be expendable. Yeah, it can't be personal. Yeah. Like, it, it's not personal. Like you said you don't see the enemy, it's faceless. But in general, war is impersonal. Mm-hmm. You've got these people who run the wars, but the, the men on the on the ground, yeah, they're, they're just... the ones that are suffering for it. It's just... It's just... It's horrifying. And you feel so insignificant with him. You do. Like you feel insignificant and overwhelmed. I mean, that's the thing I can't keep on stressing. If I had to sum up this movie in, like, one word, I would say, or oh, overwhelmed. This movie is about being overwhelmed and being significant. Not, it's just, it's just being. It's amazing. You're sitting there, yeah, because you're helpless watching somebody helpless on screen. Just when you watch other things, it's like you're sitting there watching somebody do something heroic. But you don't get that in this film. Um, There's only one couple of events in this film of heroics. Well, I would say. I mean, I understand what you're saying, heroics. but everyone is. All those men are heroic, yeah. and the women who came, the men and women who came to pick him up on the boat, everyone's heroic. It's just they're not the traditional movie sort of heroic because uh, yeah. they've already done their part and now they're trying to escape. That's what we got to keep on saying. But I know what you mean. Like Mark Rylance goes into the war to save people and Tom Hardy makes decisions to save people. So they make traditional heroic decisions, but the rest are just like expendable people trying to survive. It's I've never watched a war film ever in my life, here you go, big statement, that has ever made me understand how helpless and insignificant everyone is like they're just a piece on the board yeah they're just someone they're, else. Just they're not insignificant people but they have to be looked at as insignificant so you can make the tough decisions to not send all the boats back some of them have to die and he's just one of those people he's not a major or a general or you know he's just a normal soldier that had to go to war because he was unlucky time he was born and we have to be so blessed that we're born in a generation but we don't have to do a war like that because I mean, World War Two needed to happen, obviously, when it comes to the people fighting back. Yeah, unlike some of the other wars nowadays. But I don't want to get into that. And see, I found. Oh, is this getting to spoilers? No, it's not getting to spoilers. You know, some people got off Dunkirk. I'm not going to say who, but some get off. And because I was in that that situation with them, and I felt overwhelmed with them, and when they got home, they just you know they when some you hear some guy say you know thank you well done and so all we did was survive he said well that's good enough I've seen that done in other movies before like these people don't understand how amazing they are for what they did even if they lost that battle how amazing they are to fight for us sort of thing and I love the moment I found it really emotional the moment where they're on the train and they, the guy's knocking on the window um, you know they're getting home and they're getting onto a train station someone's knocking on a window and he doesn't want to just kind of look at him because he probably thinks oh we failed they're reading in the newspaper that maybe we failed yeah, you know. Churchill's pulled back 310 men but they've not, they haven't accomplished anything yeah Dunkirk. and before he reads the part of the speech that says but they're still amazing men yeah. and women who came and saved them too. Like, they're amazing people they're heroes so he doesn't want to look at this guy in the eye but this guy keeps on knocking on the train window and he finally looks him in the eye and the guy hands him a beer and you hear everyone celebrating and I got a bit emotional just Giving a B and everyone saying thank you for what you've done, and I just found that really overwhelming. In a Spielberg moment, clearly I had never gone to war, and clearly I don't understand anywhere near the situation they went through. This movie did a good job of putting me there, but let's face it, I wasn't there. It's not the same, nowhere near the same. Watching it in a nice, cozy cinema, but I felt that sort of that feeling of 
I, I felt so happy for them to be so, sort of celebrated. Like they deserve to be celebrated. It really put me there. I got really emotional watching it. And I, I yeah, like I said, this movie got me really emotional in the last 10 minutes. I, I felt every sort of string he pulled worked pretty much for me. And that was one of the moments I really liked. And, you know, then later on he reads the famous speech from Churchill after Dunkirk where they talk about how we're going to fight on the land, we're going to fight in the sea, we're going to fight in the air, we're going to fight, fight, fight for our country and everything like that. And it is just, I got emotional watching that too. Like, it just was really emotional. And, and, and Nolan didn't have to write a speech. He used the real speech. He had a soldier reading that speech at the same time they're being celebrated by people saying, you know, well done, lads. And it just felt so emotional and, and just made me... I mean, It I, just feels like they've just conquered like this and survived one battle before being thrusted into the next. Well, that's the other thing I was thinking. A lot to of them would have to go back. The next because, you know, how many of these people are going to have to go fight again for their homeland? A lot of them. You, you know, see, they, you, you know, see, this is just one part of the story. Was it uh, in the end of Band of Brothers? Band of Brothers is well, so goddamn there was, brilliant. There was moments of this film where it felt like I was watching episodes of Band of Brothers. In what way? Especially like when there's the group of them walking to the the boat to actually refuge in there, for the, waiting for the tide mm. uh, to get to hopefully get out. They, I just, they I formed just, a little yeah, band. Yeah, and I was like, it's, it just felt like that moment there was like that's a segment out of Band of Brothers. And also, they just—they're just sitting on the beach, and they happen to see those group of men walking together. And they ask him, you know, why are you walking together? And they say, oh, that's because there is a a capsized boat on the beach, and we're going to like try to get off using that ship. And that's just another moment of randomness. Uh, if they weren't on that particular part of the beach, they wouldn't have gone with them because there was no organization, obviously. So, like, you know, but if they didn't turn right. And go on that boat, they might have turned left and be bombed. At the end of the day, it's just random chaos. If you you live or survive, it's just random chaos. And it's a random chaos brought on by an incredibly intense situation that these lads have been put in. And you feel that in this film. The movie starts off. Luck again. The movie starts off, well, it becomes luck at one point. At, at one stage, obviously there's skills and all that, but at one stage it becomes luck. Especially when you're getting bombed on a beach, mm-hmm. sort of thing. But the movie starts off with a group of guys walking through a town and they get like flyers being dropped. Like the Germans are dropping flyers saying, We're surrounding you. Yeah. And it just, you feel it from the beginning. You know, you see like the French soldiers shooting on the English soldiers by mistake. And it's like, Oh, how many people died that way? We know that. Right? Yeah. How many people died just shooting each other? Friendly fire. Uh, happened all the time. Yeah. And it's just, it, you feel surrounded from the beginning. It's great. Um, the movie's great. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Yeah. The movie's told in a very unique way we've mentioned. I mean, you've got basically three separate stories. They're all intertwined. You've got land, sea, and air. And sometimes the timelines don't quite sync up. Like sometimes it's nighttime for one character. So we're like a little bit in the future for another character. Then, you know, we cut back to the beach and it's like daytime and it's a different time for that other character. And, um, what did you feel about that person? Like, did I, because I no, found it, it, it explains it at the start of the film. Yeah, but did you feel some parts of it are in the day, and the stuff that happens in the air is only a one-hour period? It says it right. Yeah, no. Did you feel though when you were watching the narrative? And I'm not saying this is. I'm I'm actually not saying this is a criticism. Did you feel ever confused? Absolutely not. Oh no, No. never, never confused about it. Like sometimes you see like a plane crash from the air point of view, and then you see like 20 minutes later, you see that situation from the sea. Yeah, and uh, well, I personally, I wanted to ask that question because I personally did feel a little bit confused okay. sometimes. I did just not. sometimes, no. like you're realizing, like I'm looking at that boat, and I'm going, that boat is that the same the situation before, yeah. we saw a second ago? I felt a bit confused sometimes. 
not often, but sometimes, but I feel, well, maybe I'm just really slow because you didn't feel confused. That's fair enough. But I felt that maybe feeling a little bit confused was the point in the sense of so were the people. Yeah. They didn't know what was going on. They were confused. They didn't know the personal story of Tom Hardy in the air when they're getting bombed here. Mm -hmm. So I felt like sometimes when it would go to day to night and like, oh, I saw that character there, but now it's during the day and he's there. It never really bothered me because I felt a little bit disorientated, but I felt like I was disorientated in a good way. And don't get me wrong, I was never so confused that I was taken out of the movie or angry at the film because every scene made sense in its own story. Every scene was an event happening to a character, so it made sense the way the movie was structured. But every now and then, I would feel disorientated just for a little bit when you go, wait a minute, I just saw that from another angle before and you don't know what's exactly happening in the sense of how does it fit into the whole situation we're watching from other point of views and stuff. And I felt disorientated and I feel that was done on purpose to make you feel like you are overwhelmed by the situation that there's so much going on outside your world right now and you feel lost kind of like the characters feel lost. And I thought that was maybe done on purpose it, it or maybe it was just me being be. dumb. No, I don't, think, it, I don't think it's dumb because you, you see a lot of movies, obviously, and you watch like Game of Thrones and, and things change from scene to scene. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel weirded out by it. Obviously, the plane stuff it tells you is shot in one twelfth of everything else. Yeah, because it tells you at the beginning. Yeah. It tells you like yeah. how long this period is going to be. And uh, yeah. but I thought it was really well put together, just because I felt I don't know. I just felt a little bit every now and then, even well. if it, even if Nolan's intentions wasn't that, because like you didn't feel it at all, mm. then it worked for me as an added intention, just because I felt like it made me a little bit more lost for a while. Like I said, it never. It's not like I was lost for ten minutes going, "What the hell is going on?" It was just like you had moments where you had to work out, "Oh wait, that's what I was second ago." But at first, you didn't know, and I thought that worked for the film personally. And so you trying to overanalyze things. I don't know because I feel I don't know because he he always tells his stories unique ways in general. He never hardly ever tells his narrative forward. Yeah. Batman Begins is told out of order. It makes sense completely, but it's told out of order. Prestige is told a story. Someone tells a story into a story into a story. Inception Four Layers of Dreams. He can't tell a straight story. So even when he's telling a war movie, he still has to tell everything out of order and all over the place. But I don't. I feel like I feel like the narrative didn't run as smoothly as he he's done before when it comes to working everything out. But I felt like that was on purpose. So I wasn't even criticizing it. I was just yep. wondering how you felt about it. Another thing we haven't mentioned on a technical level is that when I was watching this film, don't worry about now me being immersed, don't worry about the emotions, all that stuff. Every now and then it would hit me. I just couldn't get over the fact that how complicated this movie must have been to make. Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't just all fixing the computer. Shots of real beaches with boats in the background at a certain time of day with the water and hundreds of extras on the beach somewhere. Uh, you see, Kenneth Branagh has a scene at one stage where he's talking, and you've got a boat over there, you've got fire over here, which I'm sure is a real flame thing. You've got all these extras lying down here. Like, just to set up that one conversation scene, there is so much going on. And I just thought, how complicated and stressful would this movie be to make? Like, this would have been a hard movie to make. And if he went to the Academy Award for Best Director, well, he deserves it because Absolutely. there wouldn't be that many other movies that would be. Yeah. I mean, every movie's hard to make, but this movie looked like Jesus. Every shot was just perfectly set up well you needed everything to work <laughs> yeah it was just you can't rely on digitally touching up or fixing it i'm sure there was though i'm sure there was digital touch-ups but without a doubt because we know. see we see wide but shots of the city practical 
practical sets and, and real boats and real planes. The close-up of Kenneth Branagh's side of the conversation it probably took more than one day to shoot, by the way. The close-up, because I don't think he shot it on blue screen like so many other filmmakers do. A lot of other filmmakers would shoot on blue screen and then just add the background in, but Nolan's not like that. He's the sort of director that when he did Interstellar, he hates green screen so much that he they had a real star field outside, like a real one. Like not real, like in space, but like they actually drew star fields and, spi- and spinned it. Yeah. So it's, there's not even CG there. They didn't even use computers there. He's that crazy. So he sh- didn't do a green screen shots. Trust me. Plus you can tell. You can just tell because of the film, the depth, yeah. the light. You can tell it's not like that. So think about one shot of Kenneth Branagh's side of the conversation. If they just shoot one side that day, you've got a boat in the background. Maybe that's CG. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what it's not, but it doesn't matter. It looks, but you've got boats, you've got fires, you've got hundreds of extras you have to dress in the morning yep. to get ready. Him in costume as well. You have to lie down, set them all up, make sure the lighting is right, but you're shooting in the real world, and then hope the weather is fine so you can actually shoot the scene. And then if you do the reverses, you might have to wait for the sun to be different. You know, it, it's unbelievably complicated. Like We watch the scene and it goes over in two seconds. I just sat there going, wow, just the amount of work. From everyone involved as well, too, not just Nolan. I mean, this is everyone involved. Just to get, I mean, yeah, this is a lot of work, this film, and you can tell. There's no, there's not one moment where you get the sense that they cut some edges to do it quicker. Everything feels so real. Like you just mentioned just how hard it is to film on open water. You said, you mentioned one line a second ago, too, which we didn't even talk about here much. But yeah, they they rebuilt real planes. Mm. They used real planes to get real, and they put IMAX cameras on those planes. No CGI shots here. There's IMAX cameras getting POV shots. And they also had massive models that they remote controlled. So when a plane crashed, they had wires to like make sure it crashes the right way. And they were crashing really huge models. Mm. And they were shooting down real models and it was blowing up realistic because they were blowing up real little models and like and they're little as in they were big they weren't like yeah. models as big as my hand they were huge we're models probably talking 1.8 scale maybe, maybe even bigger four. than that I reckon even bigger than that I don't know exactly because I haven't seen the making of but I would say just they look so good that I would say they're bigger than they're big but I couldn't tell what was what watching this movie oh no definitely not and because everything was just so think about it just having just setting up a model to crash is like probably a day's work how many days would it have taken to shoot the real planes with the IMAX cameras? We have a POV shot of a camera of, of a plane crashing in this film with an and it's shot with an IMAX camera on the on the bow or whatever you call it on a plane. I don't know the top of a plane, the front of a plane. Sorry, I'm not technical. Yeah. And I read I read online that that was like a real model, a mo- not even a model. That was a real plane that they they fixed up completely. That was a real IMAX camera. They crashed it, and I've been hearing that crash sequence was a culmination of a five million dollar project for the movie. They bought a real plane and fixed it up from World War II. They put an IMAX camera on it, got some aerial shots from it, and then crashed it for real with that camera. And it cost them $5 million for that. They spent a lot of money on little things. But it worked so well because you said a second ago, when a plane gets shot in this film, they don't blow up with a firework. They have smoke trails. And it it just felt so authentic. This movie has to be watched by people just so you can sit there and go, wow. This is what movie making is. In a world where we live with Captain America 20, which I actually like the Captain America movie, so I don't know. But like you, you live in an artificial world of these movies that are just TV shows with a budget. Spider-Man Homecoming, I know a lot of people like it. I like it too. But it doesn't feel like a very special movie. It feels like just another episode of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's a fun movie. But this felt like a movie. Mm-hmm. This had a beginning, a middle, and an end. The scale was so huge. And it's what big budget filmmaking used to be. It wasn't about fix it in post. It was about having thousands of extras in real locations with real models and real planes and real ships sinking. They sunk all these real ships. They blew up all these real ships. And you can tell. And it works. This movie will never date. Absolutely It not. will never date. 
that later on you see like the plane flying and you see a wide shot of Dunkirk, the actual city in flames, not flame, but you see smoke and stuff going on. And it's 1940s Dunkirk, so clearly that's not real. It clearly must be a CG shot. But pff, I couldn't bloody tell. Like that's the thing, because because you're not overwhelmed by that sort of effect, the, the CG effects that they do have in there, just everything went blended yeah, it's together. It's not a spectacular effect. It, Is it? No, because you don't need spectacular effects when you have like cameras mounted on sets that were flooding and in separate angles. You see the water going up. You can't date water going up with people trapped in there. Like it's just, it's it's immersively amazing. It's what big budget films used to be. No, I'm not saying how the narrative, but the spectacle. Yeah. I actually felt like this was spectacle. Watching Guides of the Galaxy Volume Two, and I don't hate the movie. I thought it was fine. I actually thought it was fine. It was average. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It was fine. But that movie was an over the top abundance of just computer-generated effects that gave me headaches. It wasn't spectacle anymore. It was just a computer game. And I don't like complaining because I'm not anti-CG, but I'm anti-CG too much. (laughs) And this movie was the opposite. This movie felt so much like a spectacle. So I was sitting there in awe of a film again, and I cannot remember. I'm not talking about quality of the filmmaking because I've seen a lot of visual effects movies that are great that I love, like... uh, I'm thinking of a visual effects movie that I really love. Star Trek Beyond. I mean, that's a different... Star Wars The Force Awakens. That's got plenty of CG effects, trust me. And I mean, I like CG. So I'm not anti-CG, but what I'm saying is that when I watch Star Wars The Force Awakens, I mean, I mean, I love the story. I love the music. I love the characters. I'm crying because it's such... I love Star Wars. I'm a big, obsessed fan of Star Wars. But I don't think I ever felt spectacle. Great visual effects. They look they look great. I'm, I love the movie. Mm-hmm. But what Dunkirk gave me was spectacle, was overwhelming abundance of, you can't tell this story on television. You can't tell, this is what movies used to be. Movies, you know, now we've got great TV, like Game of Thrones and all that. The line is getting blurred between TV and movies. But when you see something like Dunkirk, that's what you can't do on TV. You cannot make a movie like Dunkirk on television. No matter how amazing visually Game of Thrones is, and I love Game of Thrones to death, it's not Dunkirk. It's not the real planes, the real ships. The real, you can't do that on television. It's what movies used to be. Movies used to tell something on a large canvas. And here he is shooting 70mm IMAX large canvas. Big story. If you watch this movie, this is one of those movies too, without a doubt. Nolan loves this. Interstellar's kind of the same. Though I think Interstellar might work a little bit better than this film will at home. But like this is the sort of movie that I will tell plenty of people. If you don't watch this in the cinema on the biggest screen possible, I don't think it's the same experience at home. I haven't seen it at home, but I doubt it's the same experience no. at home. Because it is about overwhelming. But what we're both saying is that this film emerges you within. Bigger screen, yeah. Yeah, Sound screen. Bigger screen, the sound. You need that to feel part of this film. Otherwise, you're just sort of, you're you're a spectator at home. This this film begs you to actually be immersed in with it. It's interesting too, because in a recent interview, Nolan had a big go at Netflix. Uh, Not Netflix overall, like streaming, but he had a go at the Netflix model of how they distribute movies, which is basically... They don't distribute movies. They just put them on Netflix. And he said, that's horrible. They asked him, will you ever work for Netflix? And he went, no. Because he said, Netflix take away what movies are. And a lot of filmmakers have forgotten this, I think, too. Because he says, you know, when you watch a movie at home, that's not what movies were made for. Not the movies Nolan makes. I mean, there's all these different kind of movies. But he's talking about movies should be seen on the big screen. And if they're not a story that should be told on the big screen, then why are you telling it as a movie, maybe? Like, he's all about big, big canvas spectacle. And he was talking about how he's anti-Netflix for that reason. Like, he just says, you know, they distribute a movie without the theatre and he thinks it's horrible. And he's not even saying the movies aren't worthy either. He's just saying that he reckons the Netflix model should be, you know, 90 days in the cinema and then on Netflix streaming. He says, because what they're doing is stealing movies from the cinema. And I kind of agree with him. I don't like the... I mean, people always talk about, you know, we'll live one day where, we, you know, you can stream your movie day one it comes out. But I 
don't like the sound of that in the expense of cinema. And what I love about Nolan is that he is all about preserving cinema, shooting on film, shooting big, mm. making spectacle, and making it a movie. Well, sitting there, I actually was like, at times it's like, with the sound and the visual, sitting in an IMAX cinema would have been brilliant. Oh, my God, this. yes. Especially with the sound. Like we didn't get to see it in IMAX going around. because we live in South Australia and we don't have an IMAX. So we saw it on a big screen, but it wasn't IMAX. Nah, but um, with that IMAX sound as well. You can tell. Oh. The floor shaking in the cinema. In an IMAX thing, it would have probably tickled the rib cage. It would, yeah, like, it would have probably put my heart into the back of my seat. I remember watching uh, a while ago when Titanic got re-released in the cinema. And I don't know who I turned to. Probably you, maybe. Did you see with me? Titanic 3D yeah, in the cinema? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I might have said it to you then. And probably Russell as well. I, I, yeah, and a few people. Because it's a great movie, Titanic. Yeah. Great movie. It but is. I remember turning to you. It's a very different movie than Dunkirk, though, mm. obviously. But I remember turning to you and saying... This is what a movie is because, yeah, because Titanic is a spectacle. It's a big screen movie. It's a spectacle. It's a big over the top melodramatic love story. But overall, the movie is a spectacle. Oh, and it felt like a movie. It's nowhere near as good watching it on Blu-ray. In front oh, of it's a great experience, TV. wasn't it? In the cinema, it was great. But in the cinema, the, big, the hallways flooding. Oh my the big, goodness! You know, because that was a big, expensive movie, and you yeah. you had like the the dining room flooding and all that. When you see it on the big screen, especially in three well, D, beautiful cool. thing about Titanic as well is. It's 1997 film? Yeah, 97. But it feels like something from the 1930s. Oh, it's classical. Anyway, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's a melodrama. It's an yeah, old-fashioned love story it's melodrama. Like the wind on water. And that is why, but what I'm trying to say with that is that, I mean, Dunkirk, don't get me wrong, Dunkirk and, and Titanic are very different in the sense of what they are as movies, yeah. but they're not very yeah. different in some senses in the sense of they both feel like, Movies that you actually need like to real see on a big movies. Sc- you need to go and see it on a big screen. Yeah, they feel like what movies are made for. Movies are something special, and they tell stories that you can't tell any other way, or they tell them in a way you can't tell any other I'm way. Watching The Dark Knight Rises, um, on the cinema was fantastic too. Yeah, because that was shot seventy minutes of IMAX footage, yeah. and it's just he dropped a plane from really far up. That was all real, like because that's the Nolan. Dark Knight Rises, yeah, but all these things just lend themselves to the big screen. Because Nolan's all about the big... He's all about making sure movies are what they should be. And I and agree so with him. more enjoyable to watch. Big screen as well. That's part of the experience. Yeah, he makes a movie experience again. Which, the cinema is, a, is is its own visual effect. It, yeah, it should be. And I think yeah. some films have forgotten that sometimes. Is that you can use your cinema screen as a visual effect. Um, I think we've forgotten... It, we've forgotten... I mean, when you see Mad Max Fury Road, that's a cinema experience. That is cinematic. That's a big... And then you see, we, but we see so much disposable entertainment, especially during the summer period in movies. Well, that's just welcome to the age of modern technology, and, unfortunately. Uh, and they're entertaining and they're fine, but they're not what movies are made for. And I guess you can't have this sort of film experience every week or it would never be as special when it does come out. But when you get a Nolan film, even if it's bloated, like Interstellar is bloated and some of the things don't quite work. But in general, I freaking love Interstellar. And you watch I watch it on the big screen. You love it even more. Yeah, but I love Interstellar. I still give Interstellar four out of five because I love science fiction. I love and I love the fact that he he's ambitious and he makes movies on a big canvas. I love the fact. And yeah, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it doesn't quite work. But who cares? At least he's doing something big. It's not. It's not the fortieth movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I like. I said they're all entertaining, but none of them are great movies at all. None of them. Hmm. Iron Man's a very very good movie. And most of them are all massive amount of fun. Yeah. But none of them are great movies. None of them are The Dark Knight. None of them are Psycho. None of them are Empire Strikes Back. None of them are great movies. And I feel like when you watch Dunkirk, I mean, Dunkirk, I mean, I'm not saying Dunkirk is perfect because it's not, I guess. I don't know. 
but but Dunkirk is war. I guess it's perfect at what it tries to do. Let's just say that. Yep. Um, because I'm not sure you would want this experience for every movie because you, you know, I do go to the cinema for three act narratives, but I do think it worked perfectly for what this movie was. What I was going to bring up like an hour ago, but then we got sidetracked, is that I wanted. I wonder, and I don't know because I've only seen this movie once. Um, I wonder how this movie will replay. And not just, I mean, at home and stuff. I wonder when you've got the lack of um, drama, like drama as in a character confronting another character. I mean, there's drama in the harrowing situation, but when you're watching at home and you're not as overwhelmed because you've seen it before and the scope isn't as big, I wonder what it will be like on repeat viewing. Like when you watch The Prestige for the 20th time, you can discover Tapestry. When you watch The Dark Knight, which is a great movie. But I just wonder. I have no idea. I can't even give you the answer. I think well, that, Dunkirk. I think Dunkirk. I'm always going to be entertained by it, but I just wonder how it's going to translate on repeat yeah. viewings. I think that's where at you, home. Where, you, where it comes to a point where you actually need to rely on your director and your your cinema photographer as well, because there's there's not much dialogue to to fall back on, nuance of anything. But you can sit there and watch it, and you can just be taken away visually. Oh yeah, and, and drawn in from that standpoint. Oh, I, I'll give my answer rather than there's a story in itself. I think it'll work fine, to be honest. I was just wondering. I think it'll work fine because there's so much artistry behind it. Yep. But if you're not a fan of that, then you're probably not going to enjoy it on second viewing anyway because if you're somebody who's seeking for some dialogue-rich or plot-rich film, you're not going to get it in Dunkirk. And you might enjoy it the first time because it is a spectacular film, but you might find yourself lost the second time wanting a little bit more because this is it's not really... A full Hollywood film, and if you're, no. if you're going for the Hollywood vibe and the Hollywood buzz and the Hollywood glam, this film definitely won't give it to you. And you'll probably feel like there's parts of this film when you watch it again that are lacking because it's not a film. I I, I think you cannot say that this is an not actual like a Hollywood movie. No, and if you're looking for a Hollywood film, you're not going to find it in watching Dunkirk. A lot of audiences on their second viewing probably aren't going to be drawn into it as much because they're being brainwashed by modern. Oh, no, but anyway, that's how movies work. Yeah. I, it's just, it's a very different sort of film. And I, I even feel, I feel that even on first viewing, there will be some people that go to watch this movie not knowing the kind of film it is and not liking and maybe, it. Yeah, and not being satisfied. Though, but, that's people who don't give credit to what you're watching on the screen because some of the stuff on the screen is yeah, so oh, spectacular. But that, that stuff with the planes and, like, I love, I love watching aviation on film. But it's beautiful see. and it's fascinating. It's amazing. And, this film does it so well, right up until the very end. I really like the movie, and it's so different than his other films. And I think on second viewing, you won't be as overwhelming, especially when I watch it at home. But like I said, I think the artistry behind the film, I'm always going to enjoy. I mean, and it was intense. Hmm. And I'm, I'll feel the intensity again, I'm sure. And I'm sure I'll feel the emotion again near the end. But the your, emotion everyday, your everyday works. Joe is not going to be looking for the artistry behind the film. Yeah, but, they might, but they, might, different. they might be stunned by just the scope of it, though. Yeah, but will they be stunned by it the second time? I don't know. You have to ask them. Everyone's different. I don't, for 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 a majority of people, I don't think this is a I can't a wait viewing film. I can't wait. To, well, I'm going to see it more than once in the cinema. I can guarantee, and I can't wait to see uh, the making of. I hope there's a really good making of documentary that just that I don't know, just shows you the, that the beach be and dressing people and getting stuff ready. And my sister said to me earlier that she's not a fan of war films, and um. I don't know. I'm still going to try to make her see this movie because it's not really a war film. It's a snapshot. It's in the wartime, but it's not a war film in a traditional sense. 
it's just a, it's amazing. I think it's an amazing piece of film, and it's amazing. We don't say that it might be a bit pretentious. I don't know, but I think this is a work of art in a way. This is an amazing achievement by a master filmmaker in his prime. It is a work of directive art. Yes, definitely. And uh, I think I can nearly guarantee you right now, though, it will win every sound award it can win. Sound design. It will dominate the sound awards at the Oscars. It should. I can't imagine a movie that's going to have, win the cinematography award over this. Oh yeah. And then I just hope that. It, Nolan, I mean, Nolan might finally get recognized for how skillful he is. And if he won it for this movie, he deserves it. He does. And Mark Rylance is freaking amazing. And he could get a supporting actor Oscar too. It's very subtle, but it's powerful. It is. I might, well, if we get into spoilers, we, we, into probably, spoilers. we should probably move into spoiler territory. Right, now, just to let people know, the spoiler talk won't be really long. So you basically heard most of the podcast no. anyway. But there's a, But if you've seen the movie, there's a few things I want to talk about that I don't want to wreck for people who've never seen the film. It's just a few character moments. Mm. Um, but overall, should we give an overall before we get into spoilers or just a yeah. nice warning and then give an overall? Because it's such a little spoiler section. Actually, spoilers aren't going to be that long. So, I mean, overall, I freaking love this movie and I guarantee you that it will be my top 10 at the end of the year. This is a, this is a work of true genius. Well, this is a work of a great filmmaker. Mm. It's overwhelming. It's what cinema should be. So that's my overall thing. Do I, what do I give it out of five? It's too early to say. I can never. It's too raw, too early. But it's five star for artistry, five star for having the audacity to go for a movie like this when you've got $150 million to spend. You have never seen a $150 million movie told like this. No. About this story too, about British soldiers. Absolutely About not. British soldiers too. And like you said, without the heroics of a typical war film, even the grounded ones like Saving Private Ryan, like you said, has main characters that do this heroic thing to latch onto. Yep. So as an audience, we go, yeah! Now in this film... Everyone's a hero that went to war, but we don't see that heroic um, sort of gung-ho, let's, John Wayne, let's go kill the Nazis. You don't see that with the main character. You just see trying to survive. Yep. So it's just so different than the what heroic, we normally yeah, see. Yeah, the heroics of survival, not the heroics of actually and defeating an enemy. So it's got big Hollywood spectacle, and it's a movie that relies on, it knows that you will feel emotions without me, or without me, without Nolan forcing you to feel emotions by pulling those strings that every movie does. Like we feel emotions because they're human beings in a horrible situation and he hopes that he makes a movie that can f- throw you into that horrible situation so you understand. And by the end of it, you just feel it. You feel all the emotions and it's so well put together. And like I said, there's a few emotions I want to talk about there in the spoiler section, but I'll let Tate uh, sum up quickly before I do that. But um, overall, this is a magnificent film. Magnificent, yeah. personally. And... The best cinema experience I've had this year, hands down. Like, I can imagine watching Logan at home and loving it. Mm-hmm. And I have. I've watched it, and it's great. I can imagine. And I saw Logan twice in cinema. I saw Get Out, which is a small indie film that I love. But watching it at home would be just as good an experience. But this movie was, this was a cinema experience, and I loved it to death. So if I had to give a star review, as it stands right now, for my first viewing, I would give it four and a half out of five. But like I said, it's so raw right now, so it's always... It's very hard to do a star review this early after only seeing the movie once um, because who knows, after the second viewing, it could be a five-star film. Uh, it probably won't go down to four, but it could go up it, because you just you never truly know how you feel about a movie until you've seen it a few more times. But right now, as it stands, four and a half stars out of five and one of the absolute best movies I've seen this year, if not the best, uh, and definitely the best cinema experience. Uh, Tate Boyland yep. what did you think spoiler free oh, look, sum up sum up you, you've touched on a lot of things like I saw Logan in the cinema I enjoyed Logan in 
cinema, but Logan, I enjoyed it also at home. I think this this film completely lends itself to the cinema atmosphere. Mm. I'd love to go to Melbourne oh, tomorrow morning IMAX. and actually watch it in IMAX. I think it'll just take it to that next level. It would. Watching it at home, I don't think I'll enjoy it quite much. The cinema adds a, a, a new dimension to this film. We've already talked about it, but yeah. you know that's that's the prowess of Nolan actually using the screen as a visual effect as well, and using the speakers as a sound effect, like getting the best out of what's in front of you and what's around you. That's one of the, the great things is just just how emerged you are in this film. Yeah, we, feels, we said it 400 times, but it's so I, true. I, I, don't know. I, I just envy the people who actually got to see this in IMAX because I can only just imagine just... The POV the, shots like just of the how Spitfires? It yeah, just, oh. how, just how drawn into this film you would have been. Like I said, it's a, not a film, it's a documentary. It's a, it's a well-shot, a well-executed documentary on film. I know what uh, you're saying, because it, because it doesn't have the trappings of a Hollywood movie with all the, I can't wait to get back to my yeah, daughter. Yeah. I can't, you know, all these little stories. It doesn't have all those typical dramas yeah. that it feels so authentic. It's like, like I've never, I've it's never like been... a high-budget World War Two in colour, and it's been, like, touched up and put into, like, 1080 and shot beautifully, and, beautifully. <laughs> and that's that's what you that's what exactly what I felt. It's like watching World War Two in color, and it's like watching a history lesson unfold well, in front like, of your eyes. I always thought I'm gonna to have to compare this movie to Saving Private Ryan, but they're both so different. Saving Private Ryan, say, well, they're so different. Even Saving, though they're like the genre is the same, a war, war, I guess. Well, then Nolan said it wasn't a war film. That's an interesting thing. He actually said not a war film, even though it is part of a World War Two story. Yeah. But like Saving Private Ryan is a five star masterpiece and one of Spielberg's greatest movies ever. Mm. Will I say Dunkirk is better than that? No. I don't think Dunkirk is better than Saving Private Ryan. But I've seen Saving Private Ryan a hundred times. I'm going to see Dunkirk more. So I don't know yet. But I don't think so. But they both got advantages over each other. Yep. Saving Private Ryan's got this emotional story that works so powerfully and it puts you in this nobody. And it changed the way war films were made. War films weren't that. They were anti-war or they were pro-war. They had John Wayne or they were Stanley Kubrick, Path for Glory. But they were not what this movie was. Tom Hanks was an everyday school teacher sort of man. He was an everyday man thrusted in war. And Saving Private Ryan did something amazing and it changed cinema in a way that Dunkirk probably won't because Dunkirk can't because not many people will make movies like Dunkirk again. But Saving Private Ryan changed the way movies were made. War movies were made. Everything yeah. copied Saving Private Ryan after. So they're very different in that sense. But what Dunkirk offers, because I said they both got different advantages, what Dunkirk offers over, I think, Private Ryan, which is amazing because Private Ryan is really grounded and great but i think dunkirk offers an authenticity that even saving private ryan can't get near now the thing is saving private ryan was made for 60 million dollars in the late 90s this was made for 150 million dollars now that's part of the reason why one can feel a little bit more authentic in the sense because of the way he shot it it's such a big movie private ryan wasn't as big as this movie but like that's the one advantage this movie has over private ryan full stop is authenticity when he was going to try, when he was trying to get on the boat, the group of people and they wouldn't let the French on, and he was there. Yep. That was the moment. You know what part it is? That was the moment where I sat down, going, "I don't know where the movie begins and the world ends. This is just real. It felt so real. It felt so authentic. And that's something that I've never ever seen in a war film before. And that's the advantage it has over other films. I've never seen a war film like this, and I've never. And I bet you, you'll never see the war told like this ever again." Yep. This is a singular vision. And I, there's not many filmmakers that can get a $150 million budget to tell the story. Only Nolan could really do it. Maybe James Cameron could if he wanted to, but he's not going to want to. So there's not many filmmakers who could actually get a budget like this to tell this movie. And then there's even less, obviously, filmmakers who would make the movie without a traditional narrative. So you're never going to see a movie like this again. This is this is why it's so, it's so singular a vision of an auteur. No other filmmaker could make this movie. Solid film. Solid film. 
So I guess that's it for your sum up. Yeah. Um, uh, so now spoilers, but this isn't really. Oh wait, spoilers, people, spoilers. Uh, so anyone who's still listening, yeah, there's only a few things I wanted to mention in spoilers. Just the fate of a few characters, uh, but this won't go long. This is because we've already basically reviewed the film. It's just I really wanted to mention how powerful some moments were, and uh, one of the moments I really wanted to mention that I didn't want to spoil. There's yep. two moments actually. So, and they're both on Mark Rylance's boat. Uh, part number one that really hit me the first time I really like I was watching the movie I was overwhelmed I was on the edge of my seat yeah 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 but the first time I actually got tears in my eyes uh, was the moment when um, you know how Killian Murphy hurts George is it George the yeah. young boy by mistake the 17 year old yeah. he hits his head because he's trying to turn the boat around because he doesn't want to go back to Dunkirk and by mistake he hits the guy down some stairs and he hits his head on something yeah, on the ground on the ground and uh, he dies. And it's really emotional because he's just a young kid, obviously, like all the others, but he's 17. And mm-hmm. and there's a moment where Killian Murphy asks Mark Rylance's son, is he okay? And actually, the first time he asks him before he dies, he says, no. He says it angrily. Like, yep. no, he won't be okay because he's angry at him. Yep. And then the second time he asks him after the boy died, the young boy who fell over died, he says, in Killian Murphy, he's asked him, will he be okay? And he says, yes. And then Mark Rylance gives him this look like he, he nods his head going, yep, yeah, yeah, that's dude. the right thing to say. And that hit me. That was really emotional. And that I just was, uh, The poor guy didn't want to go back to the stresses of where he just came from. It was just an emotional moment. Where it was and like rather a, than adding that additional thing saying, well, you killed an innocent kid. An innocent civilian kid, basically, by... Being scared. By, by being scared. It's not his fault. Yeah. Or it is. But it's not... No, it's not it's his not, fault. He was in shock. He didn't want to go back to the stresses of where he just came from. Uh, so... He, it's... Uh, yeah, it was just a moment of, in a moment of this horrible things happening, all these beautiful people are dying, and and this young kid died for no reason really. It was just unfortunate, really unfortunate, obviously. And it was a moment of warmth that he didn't have to give him, but it was like an understanding of where you've been. Mm. Like you've been, you've seen so much, Killian Murphy, and it was just this moment of warmth that really worked. That's what I mean. This movie had moments that didn't feel showy, but it had moments of humanity that really hit me. And that was one of the moments that I think really Mark Rylance in general is that display of humanity oh, anyway in, uh, the, in yeah. the film. He was absolutely because he was so subtle, but he was absolutely he magnificent. He doesn't have much dialogue, but what he probably has more than anyone else. Though. But he probably has more, <laughs> more actual lines. <laughs> thing. But yeah, so you're right. No, he sort of is that drive and the spirit of actually wanting to do something good to get these people back. And the second emotional part. There's actually three now. I thought of another one that I haven't mentioned yet, but the second emotional spoiler part that I didn't want to mention, which I thought was the best one that really worked really well, is during the movie, Mark Rylance saves a pilot as well that crashes. And at one stage, that pilot asks Mark Rylance's son, like, what's his deal? Talking about Mark Rylance's character. And he says, well, he had a son that was a pilot in the war and he died three weeks in. And I'm not giving it justice because I'm a bad actor. But the moment he said that about like this man who is risking so much to save as many men as he could, young lads as he could, he had a son that died three weeks into the war uh, who was obviously really well trained too because he was a pilot, just added a context to Mark Rylance's character. All of a sudden I'm thinking about him as a character, how heroic he is, the faces he makes. and that, it just He may add- have lost his son, but he wants to do something for the war effort he, on top he, of it. There was so yeah. much emotion added to his character from that moment. Mm. He's such a warm character already, but then to be to, to, to be a father that went through something horrific 
and just it added something to him. And you could tell that that was in his head the whole time you're watching the movie. And I can't wait to watch it again to see that. And it was just a beautiful moment that really hit me. Because I, like, once again, without doing over the top, you know, we didn't have to sit down and talk about his son in the first act of the movie. No, it, it, I just had to know who he was as a human by just seeing him in this situation. And then it hit me. It really hit me. And then later on, when you see, actually, this is another moment that's spoiler then. But then later on, this is all the last 10 minutes now, when they all get home to England. And uh, you see some of the normal soldiers saying to the pilot, where the hell were you? you know, they were angry at him for like not saving him more, right? saving more men. And Rylance again? Mark Rylance turns to him and says, they might not know where you were, but these men know where you were, the people on the boat that he saved. And I thought, that this man is a hero, unsung hero. He wasn't in the war. Yeah. He had a son that died. He just sounds like the perfect sort of father who like loved his family, listened to the stories of his son. Like his son probably said, like these are the techniques that, yeah, well, that's how he knew him. Like, that's how he, that's he, how he knew him. Took that and he's like, that's why he got his other son to sort of steer the boat and said, well, this is the way they are going to to drop the bomb. So this Wait. is what you need to do, yeah, to avoid and, being uh, hit direct. He was so warm. And then obviously on the train later, I already mentioned, I felt emotion when they gave him the, the beard. The ending of this movie was just me crying. Like, it really was emotional. But it was probably because I was so overwhelmed. It was over. So it was this overwhelming feeling of emotion now that, and then so obviously the part where they got the beer from the people they mentioned, and another one I wanted to mention, and this is the last one then, yeah. deals with George who died. He talked about at one stage how he wanted to have his name in the papers just before he died. He said, "I want to have my name. I wanted to have my name in the papers to be someone one day." So Mike Rylance's son gives his picture to the newspaper, and they actually in the newspaper they put a picture of him and say, "You know, seventeen-year-old boy civilian, a hero at Dunkirk," yeah. and that made me cry too. That made me tear Thank up as well too. Man. This movie was really emotional, and that was it. Was just it was it worked. There was these points that Nolan hit in the last ten minutes that all worked, and none of them felt showy. And they're all in there. They're all a filmmaker trying to make you feel an emotion, but they worked so well because they were so subtle in how they 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 came out. They came out so realistically, so the emotion just worked. Magnificent yep. film. That's my spoiler talk. If okay. Tate has anything from spoilers you no, want to mention, no, like spoiler, but I, Tom Hardy getting captured at the end. Oh yeah, poor Tom Hardy. He did get captured at the end, but. What fascinates that me is that they're actually them. talking about the sound of the um, Spitfire engines when they're on the boat, like Rylance and the two boys are on the boat. How beautiful out. they it's sound. Like the, sound the, the beautiful sound of a Spitfire. But then what Nolan does at the end of the film, he kills the sound of the Spitfire because it's gliding through the air and everybody's heroic on the land because he knows that the poor guy, the poor pilot, has risked his own life, basically, running on fuel because oh, yeah. he actually hints it, like... You knew that as soon as they were like checking their fuel, like on the first check of fuel, you knew that it was going to play a part in the last oh, moment yeah. of that film. That's what I thought. Anyway, I was like, there's going to be something that he does at the end of the film. And it's like, once he got down to 15 gallons, you, I knew there's no way he's going to make it back to England. That was the moment we hinted at in the spoiler free section where we said that, you know, Tom Hardy makes a decision at one stage and without dialogue, you know, he's sitting there in the cockpit. And you know that he can either turn home yeah. and get because he's running he out of fuel. Exactly how much fuel he had left in his plane. He either turns home or he doesn't turn home, and he becomes more of a hero than he already yeah. was. And he didn't turn home; he became more of a hero. And he knew he couldn't get home. Yeah, he came to a point once he had fifteen gallons of fuel left. There was no way he's getting back to England. It was yeah, he anymore. had the choice. He said, "Do I do that or don't? I have to go now." And he didn't go. He went to save more so people. They had 60, 60 gallons, I think, at the start, and then as soon as they sort of got yeah, down the movie to ticks twenty, it down. yeah. And, and that's part of Hans Zimmer in this film, in those plane scenes. 
you hear the ticking because they're actually like checking the fuel and then giving it a 30 second it, count. They're actually like counting how it's fast. It's like a ticking bomb. Yeah, but they're, it's like a ticking bomb. They're, count, they're right? counting how fast over a period of time that they're actually burning off their fuel. But just that final scene of like the plane going over the top of Dunkirk silently, the Spitfire that's just gliding. Everyone's, and everyone and celebrates it. Everyone's uncelebrating because, you know, inevitably he's basically taken down the last Heinkel plane out over yeah, the Yeah, he saved so many people. Sea, that and he's actually like saved everyone on land. But they talk so much about the sound of the Spitfire being this heroic sound during the war effort. And here is one is, is just no sound, just gliding over over the bay of uh, Dunkirk. It's a po- it's beautiful. And it's really emotional. And then and then Nolan gets a little bit of suspense out of us yeah. because his landing gears won't work. Yeah, but it worked because I wanted him to land. So he has to go to the hydraulic pump to, get, he's trying to, to get it down. To get his wheels out. It takes forever yeah. for the wheels to go down. And then he lands and he blows up his plane and he stands there knowing he's about to be captured by the Germans. Mm-hmm. And that's a hero. That, that was a real hero. He's a hero. He's one of the real heroes he of the movie. And um, yeah, that's what moment we hinted at before. And it was a beautiful moment of a guy realizing what he has to do to save people and if he went home if he turned home there would have been nothing wrong with his decision yeah but he but he did it those people probably would have gone back home no he saved he saved, he saved plenty of lives he saved plenty of countless lives thousands that were nothing was going to stop there. that plane so yeah that was a great moment and he knew exactly where he was going to like he just stands there waiting to get captured he knows exactly what's going to happen now then you talk about the last shot of the film because we see that happening while the main character uh, Tommy's reading Churchill's famous speech, you know, we'll fight him in the land, the air. And uh, I thought it was really interesting to end on him. He finishes the speech and then it has a really quick two seconds, three seconds on him where he looks up and it's sort of like the, I, I don't know, but it was just a really nice way to end on him. Like what is going through his mind right there? Like, is this just all words after what I've seen? I mean, yeah. I don't know. All I know is that or it just, it just. Inv- I've made it back here and now <laughs> it looks like the war if it's going to come across to England and I'm going to be back in it again. It's just It was a great little moment you at know, the this end. This was a small victory getting back home, but it, the war's not over yet. Yeah. At the end of the day, the they lost the battle yeah. and they had to retreat. Yeah. So I guess that is it for the Dunkirk podcast, you reckon? Yeah. Or you want something else? You got something else no. to say? No, let's wrap it up. Well, then I will say this before I sign us off. Why don't you tell the lovely listeners if they want to know about wine reviews? Where they can uh, find some wine reviews, maybe, that you might have yeah, wrote. no drinking of wine in this film. Um, not enough time. Not enough time. Some beer at the end, though. Some beer at the end. Some letho, actually. Some Belgian beer at the end. Um, they can find me at www.thesawineguy.wordpress.com. Or you can go onto Facebook and type in The SA Wine Guy. Just look at some Ponzi man sniffing them through a glass of wine, and then you know that's Is that me. you, the Ponzi man? Yeah, I'm Yay. the Ponzi man sniffing through the glass of wine. You'll find me on the Game of Thrones podcasts every Tuesday. The cast of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing how that plays out as well. And you can find me and this podcast at www.moviemingler.com or on Facebook, just type in Movie Mingler or on Twitter at Movie Mingler. We've also got an iTunes account. Just uh, go to iTunes website and type in Movie Mingler. You can rate and subscribe to us there. Or like I said, you can go to moviemingler.com and if you click on one of the podcast posts, you can scroll to the bottom and that takes you straight to the iTunes. Or you can just stay there, click on the podcast and press play and you can listen to the beautiful musings of us. Or you can right click on download podcast and save as. And guess what? You can keep it on your iPod or something. You have the file forever. Free of charge. I've also got an email which is nickdescalzi at gmail.com. So you can email me there. It's uh, N-I-C-K-D-E-S-C-A-L-Z-I at gmail.com. So, yep, that's it for the podcast. And I say thanks, Tate, for joining me for this very special Dunkirk edition of 
Movie Mingler. Yeah, it's been good. And uh, we'll be back soon with a cast of Ice and Fire, the Graham Thrones podcast. Yep, where we'll be joined by Chris of the House Targaryen. And Movie Mingler will be back in a few weeks' time also with a podcast I will do with Chris on Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. The movie from 1992, the Twin Peaks film. We'll also talk about the first two seasons of Twin Peaks as well. But keep spoiler free of the new Twin Peaks, The Return, which is wonderful right now on uh, Showtime. So anyway, we'll be back. Thanks, Tate. Thanks, uh, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, And uh, bye. Let's call it a night.